We all yearn for good news as a thirsty man in the desert yearns for water. And yet we're suspicious when that good news comes along. Perhaps it is because of some of our experience in childhood. Perhaps at school there were disappointments that soured us and embittered us when Providence brought to view something that seemed too good to be true. Maybe it was in our early business experience, or courtship, or marriage. But most of us have become suspicious of good news. And yet there is good news for you today. News that will seem too good to be true indeed, but which is true. Suppose I said to you that your guilt and your mortality were but a dream. That there was an unknown friend who could not only do for you all you desired, but also undo those things in the past you wanted to undo. Now that would be something indeed. Too good to be true? Please listen. Let us consider a story about people like ourselves, people burdened with doubts, fears, guilt and mortality. And suspicion, suspicion of good news. I'm reading from Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. He said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And they yet believed not for joy. The New English Bible translates this section, It was too good to be true. May I remind you of the background of the story? These men had been living in a pool of darkness since they forsook their best friend when the authorities took him to prison. They watched his execution and hope died out of their hearts. Since then, living behind locked doors, life had been purgatory. To make it worse, some of their number had gone mad, or so it seemed. Some among them had had hallucinations. They'd declared that the tomb was now empty and that Jesus was risen from the dead. But whoever heard of such a thing, that would be much, much too good to be true. This was a situation when suddenly into the upper room burst two men who only a few hours ago had left for Emmaus several miles away. But now what transformed men? Or were they men who had had hallucinations? The Lord is alive, they shouted. He is, he is. Without warning, suddenly there was another present, and it was he, the Lord. And he says to them, Peace be unto you. Why are ye fearful? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? But they supposed they'd seen a ghost. Why are ye fearful? There's a good question indeed. 
is worth stopping to think about it. What he's really saying is, why do you think it's too good to be true, that I'm alive? Perhaps it was because they were failures. Perhaps it was because they were guilty. Unbelief is always a great troubler. And wherever there's unbelief, there's guilt. Our peace comes from faith. And when our faith grows weak, our peace of mind is apt to decline. Then we're likely to become much disturbed in spirit. Even those who are believers who pass from death unto life are sometimes troubled. So you can be sure that those who do not believe are more so. If every unconverted man could see his true state, he wouldn't dare to give sleep to his eyes, nor slumber to his eyelids, till he'd been brought to know the Lord. If those who are living without a saviour realise their lost condition, their pillows would be stuffed with thorns instead of feathers. Yes, unbelief is one cause for doubts arising in the heart. The scripture says that they supposed they'd seen a ghost. How much of our trouble grows out of our suppositions? Some suppose they've committed the unpardonable sin. Some suppose that they have an incurable disease. Others suppose that they're about to lose their money. Of course, there's an obvious answer to all such supposings. It's this. Suppose you haven't. It's very rare for anyone who's ever committed the unpardonable sin to worry about it. They're usually past worrying. And we don't lose our money as often as we think we're going to. Not all of it, that is. And neither is incurable disease as frequent a thing as we're inclined to suppose. Let's try the other type of supposing. Suppose we have not. Suppose we have not committed the unpardonable sin. Suppose we have not an incurable disease. One supposition is just as legitimate as another in many circumstances. Of course, if we want to increase our suspicions of the providence of God and apparent good news, it wouldn't be hard to do. Suppose there's going to be an earthquake right where you are in an hour's time. Suppose World War III will break out next week. Suppose the stock market has just crashed, never to rise again. Jesus says, my friends, why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Why these foolish suppositions that doubt the goodness of God, who made the sky blue and the grass green, that gave us a sense of colour and sound and taste? Why do we doubt him? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Someone says, I think the Bible may not be true. Well, if that's so, my friend, it's a very unique book. For the first time, men lie in order to be martyred. Have you ever noticed that many of the writers of the Bible were put to death? All the apostles except one were martyred. Isaiah the prophet was put in a hollow log and sawn in two. Jeremiah had his brains dashed out in the cobblestones of Egypt, according to Jewish tradition. It was never easy for the men that wrote the Bible. Now, men will risk danger for what they think to be true, but it's rare that they'll risk life itself for what they know to be a lie. 
It's a rare book, the scripture of ours. A man is often condemned or justified by his words. We should think on some of the words of Christ, words that will answer our doubts as to whether the Bible is true. Think of those found in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. How did he know? Empires have come and gone. The great men of history have come and gone. There are very few of them from the time of Christ, whom we even know by name. We call our dogs Pilate or Herod. We wouldn't think of calling our dogs Jesus. But his words have grown more and more. His words attend our birth and our death and our marriage. They sanctify the most solemn of occasions. Heaven and earth shall pass away, he predicted, but my words shall never pass away. How is it that the words of a penniless Jewish carpenter are bound more and more, whereas the words of the men of his age, for the most part, have been lost? How did he know? On another occasion, he said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he knew what sort of a church, because he spoke about it containing wheat and tares. He described it as a net with fish both good and bad. He had no illusions. And yet he said this church would endure, that death and hell could not destroy it. And today it's the greatest organization on earth. The Church of Christ, composed of all those that trust in his merits that serve him in sincerity and love their fellow men, the greatest organisation on earth. On one occasion when a prostitute anointed his feet, he said of her that what she did would be preached in all the world. Read the account in each of the four Gospels. He said, wherever this gospel is preached in all the world, this that this woman hath done shall be told of for a memorial of her. Read the account in Matthew 26, Luke chapter 7, and the other references. How did he know? How could he speak with such certainty about his gospel? My friend, he could foretell the future because he is the one that makes the future. He is God. The Bible is true. It's true in what it says about human nature. It paints us as no other book has ever painted us, in all our weakness and folly and selfishness. It's true about the divine nature. It shows us that God is much better than we've ever dared to hope. Have you ever heard of Pascal's wager? Pascal was a great French scientist. He said on one occasion, to this effect, Those that disbelieve the scriptures have everything to lose and nothing to gain. But those that believe the scriptures have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Isn't that true? Jesus said to his disciples on this occasion, Handle me and see. A real fellowship with the Bible will dispel doubt. You will find its commands are safeguards for living. You'll find its promises are true. Read its promises. Read its biographies. Read its prophecies. Read in all of these the Lord Jesus Christ as its chief matter. Read and see.
the Bible is true. Another one says, I'm troubled because my thought is that if I became a Christian, I could not live up to it. My friend, it's better to say, I'll become a Christian and I'll trust him to help me live up to it. You do the coming, he'll do the saving. Come just as you are, but he won't leave you just as you are. Another says, well, it's too fantastic to be true. Much, much too good. It would be if it came from you. Do you want a little gospel from a great God? Often it's our self-righteousness that prevents us from believing. Perhaps we think we don't need to believe. We think that the peace that Christ offers us is connected with a certain progress in holiness, as if by fulfilling certain moral obligations we could prove ourselves qualified for its enjoyment before receiving it. And indeed, there is a type of preparation required, but it consists in a deep awareness of our own sinfulness, not our righteousness. The disciples that day were thinking, if Christ were indeed risen from the dead, He wouldn't have come into the midst of us with a salutation of peace upon his lips after we had so shamefully denied and forsaken him. It might have been otherwise had we remained faithful to him. How foolish. They thought of peace as a thing to be purchased by their own good works. What does it cost? My friend, the peace of Easter is above all price. But Jesus offers it to you as the gift of grace. It's not as saints but as sinners that he invites us to partake. All that desire it have a right to it because he, as their representative, fulfilled the law perfectly and yet died for all men's transgressions against it. So someone else, I'm a nobody. Well, my friend, Christ died for nobodies. Abraham Lincoln was right. God must have loved the common people for he made so many of them. Yet another says, I am poor. Friend, the gospel is preached to the poor. Read Luke chapter 4. I am illiterate and uneducated, says another person. The Bible is written for the uneducated, as well as for the educated. It's a plain gospel. Christ died for our sins, and whosoever believeth hath eternal life. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a plain gospel indeed. We were ruined without asking for it in our first representative Adam, but we've been redeemed without asking for it by our second representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a plain gospel, is it not? Someone else says, nobody knows me. My friend, Christ knows you and loves you and died for you, for you, you, you listening to my voice. Christ died for you. He has a place in heaven for you. He yearns to comfort you now. The worst troubles of these men came from their wrong views about Jesus. Some people say, Christ is too supernatural. I don't believe in the supernatural. My friend, however young you are, 
you'll soon, comparably soon, be off the scene of life. And then you'll have to deal with the supernatural, with God and the angels with judgment. It's best to practice believing in it right now. Others say, but he's dead. Christ is dead. That's what the disciples thought. The scripture says, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. You know, a summer shower can be the explanation of a little pool of water on the road, but you can't explain the Gulf Stream that way. And Christianity is like the Gulf Stream. It took some tremendous cause to transform the broken-hearted followers of the Christ in that first century, to make them meteors for him, flaming torches, ready to do and die. The only explanation is that given in the scriptures. Now is Christ risen from the dead. Some say it's too unreal. My friend, there are many invisible things that are very real indeed. No one's seen his own brains, but we trust they are real. Few people have actually seen the back of their necks except in a reflection, but they're real. God is as real as we are real, more real because we're temporary and he's eternal. And God raised Jesus from the dead. In fulfilment of prophecy, read Psalm 16. Then the disciples thought that if it was Christ, he was unapproachable because they're sins. Ah, my friends, God is love. Why? a wish for him, a tear shed for him, a prayer to him, and he's there. He's everywhere present for the soul seeking him. Some say, but he's too holy for me to have to do with. What do you want, an unholy saviour? Don't believe the false gospel, that when you're holy enough, he'll love you. The true gospel's the other way. When you see he loves you, you'll become holy enough. And he loves you, from the beginning. Will you listen to the great facts that should dispel these thoughts, these suppositions? Jesus Christ is alive. He lives as one who's made full atonement for your sin. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Are you in the world? Of course. And he's taken away your sin. If one died for all, then all died. He died for all. God counts it that we died, that we have paid the price of our sins. Right now, Jesus is pleading with you and for you. It's only our sinful nature that makes us fear that the gold might be counterfeit. The pearl, a cheat, the hope, a delusion, our confidence, a dream. We think of the greatness of the gospel things themselves, that I, a condemned one, could be accepted that I, a sinner, could be treated as though I'd kept the law perfectly. We think of the strange terms, the miracle of the manner equals the marvel of the matter. God doesn't say do penance, become a monk, starve yourself, wear a hair shirt. There are no works for acceptance, my friends. We're justified by faith alone, regardless of our success in keeping the law. Romans 3.28, New English Bible Translation. 
There's nothing to do for acceptance. There'll be much to do after that. Because we want to do it. Just trust him. That's the method by which God proposes to do all. Just our trust. He pardons and justifies. Instantly we trust. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We needn't remain a moment longer unsaved. We need not be anxious about what God thinks of us. Only what he thinks of Christ, our substitute. We're not called upon to make our peace with God. We never have and we never can do that. We're called upon to accept Christ, who is our peace. When men hear this gospel for the first time, they'll run anywhere to hear it again. That was the secret of Luther and Spurgeon and Whitfield and Moody, that God loved sinners and died for them. God so loved the world. The greatness of the mercy should encourage us to believe it comes from God. Look at this story of Luke 24 again. What is it that's being offered? Peace. What a gift. The object for which Christ comes has been unfolded in this salutation of his. Peace be unto you. He comes to bring peace to his children. This has been his employment. Even early on the morning of that day, it remained so as long as he tarried upon earth. What type of peace? A wonderful, an inexhaustible, a glorious peace. Not a peace such as the world can give and take away, but such a peace as Jesus himself enjoys, his own peculiar Easter peace, invaluable treasure, for it is a deep and unutterable peace. Look at the Saviour as he stands before us after his resurrection. How serene, how joyful he appears. What a halo of Sabbath stillness still surrounds him. Nowhere can we see a trace of care or sorrow. The days of weeping are past. The complaint is no longer heard. My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. There's no echo now of the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It will never be uttered again. Not by him. Only by those who reject him. All oppression and heaviness have been removed from his soul. Darkness and woe have disappeared. His heart resembles a calm and tranquil sea in which the constellations of heaven are reflected. His mind is serene like the bright morning of a festal day. His spirit is a holy temple, filled with harmony and love. His bosom's a fountain of peace. It's this peace which he brings to his sheep, this Easter joy which he now offers them. What wonderful peace. What conditions are there for this peace? What does he require of us? Who were the persons to whom he offered it? Well, let's think on both those things. Take the second one first. Are they the saints? Are they the people who fought a good fight, who finished their course, who kept the faith? No. They're faithless, unbelieving. Their virtues have suffered shipwreck. When their love was tried, it couldn't stand the protest. They had nothing to bring forward but lamentations for their weakness, their sinfulness and their errors. Does this prevent our Lord offering them the whole fruit of his sufferings and of his death? Did they hear a single word of reproach from his mouth? Did he make any conditions with them? Coming to our second question about conditions. Did he say, as soon as you've done this or that, the same peace shall enliven you which I now enjoy? No, my friend, it was far otherwise. Not a syllable of the kind was heard. His peace was offered to failures. There was no reproach, no law urged upon them, though indeed they would gladly keep it. 
when reinstated. There were no conditions offered to them for acceptance except believing. It is not the faintest allusion to their successes in keeping the law, for they were none. He advances to meet them with the utmost condescension and love, and he greets them in the simple words, Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. My friend, to believe it is to take away fear. It is to take away care. It is to take away doubt. Peace be unto you. And he showed them his hand and his side and his feet. He showed them his wounds. And then he directed them to the word. It says he opened the scriptures to them. He didn't direct them to their feelings or to their emotions, but to the word which said that he'd been wounded for our sakes. This peace of Christ, my friends, withstands the law, withstands death, withstands the grave. Don't say it's too good to be true. Don't say if that were so, I could go through life rejoicing, having nothing to fear, having no need for anxiety, nothing to annoy. Don't doubt it. It is exactly so. You have nothing to fear if you believe. You have no need for anxiety if you trust in the merits of Christ. Nothing need annoy you if you believe the risen Lord is in control of all. If you believe. If you believe. My friend, if you really see Jesus as he's shown in the world, loving, serving, giving, forgiving, dying, rising, interceding, if you really see that, it's not hard to believe. When Luther sought by hours of confession to find peace, Stalpitz, the vicar general, said to him at last, Martin, Martin, you'll only find peace in the wounds of Jesus. Look there. There's the price of our sins paid. In his hands, in his side, in his feet. Our sins are paid for, past, present and future. So believe, receive. Nothing is too good to be true of the good and gracious God. Believe it today, my friend. Even this day. God bless you. Amen.